We're going to be in the book of Genesis this morning, chapter 1. And as you turn there, grab your uh, sermon insert sheet. As uh, last week we began a series uh, that we've entitled Relationships. And it's a little different uh, of a series. Uh, what is our normal practice here at Village Bible Church is to uh, go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And we just finished up uh, a series through the two uh, books of First and Second Thessalonians. Spent uh, our entire uh, first part of our year uh, looking at those two great letters and gleaning great truths from it. Uh, but the teaching team wanted to focus a little bit uh, for a short amount of time, six or seven weeks, on the subject of relationships. And the theme and purpose, if, if you will, of this series is to recognize that our lives are filled with all kinds of relationships. It has been said that life is about relationships, and if one desires a satisfying and fulfilling life, then it will be determined by the relationships that you and I have. And so uh, if you say today you are having a great life and life is good, I'm going to contend with you this morning. It's probably because of the relationships that you have, that your relationships are going well, whether it's in your marriage, a relationship with the kids, or, or with your parents, a relationship with your family and friends, even your relationship with acquaintances, whether at work or play, uh, the... the uh, if you will, the relationships that we have are going to determine whether life is good or, or not so good. And yet we recognize this morning that while relationships can be something that are such a blessing in our lives, that that's not always the way relationships are. And over these next six or seven weeks, we're going to look at what God's Word has to say about particular relationships in our lives. We're going to look at the, the re marital relationship as we did last week. We're going to look at the relationship of the family, parents and kids, kids and parents. We're going to look at uh, relationships within the church, in the workplace. We're also going to talk about what relationships look like when they go bad and God's prescription to how we redeem and reconcile bad relationships and the importance that forgiveness has. Uh, we're going to be doing it a little differently. Usually I'm the one that's teaching week in and week out from this series. Well, we're going to be inviting each of our campus pastors and teaching pastors in to take uh, each of these relationships and speak to them um, uh, and to uh, help us understand God's Word. And, and I've been given the charge of speaking on the relationship that God has, and it's going to sound weird, the relationship that God has with Himself. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But as we look at relationships... We have to ask the question, where does one go to understand relationships? Where does one go to find a model relationship? Let's be honest, that every, every relationship, even the best of our relationships, have struggles, have issues that need to be reconciled, have strife, have difficulties. It's because of this that all of us in humanity seek for healthy and vibrant relationships. You see, inherent within us is the desire not only for relationships, but relationships that bless us, that bring uh, a, a level, if you will, of uh, success. Whether it's in the relationship between spouses, family, or friends, we long for our relationships to make a, a difference in the lives around us. Yet all of us, while desiring healthy relationships, it's true that not all relationships are, in fact, healthy. So where do we go? Where do we turn? Well, the Bible is full of passages that talk about how we can have healthy relationships, earthly relationships. Throughout the scriptures, we see God's prescription to how we can have significant and successful relationships in the world we live in. 
But I'm here to tell you this morning that uh, the greatest theme of all of Scripture isn't how you and I can have healthy earthly relationships, but it's about the greatest relationship that is known to mankind, the relationship of God with His creation, human beings. And the scriptures uh, from the book of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation tells us God's undying and unending desire to redeem and restore and reconcile a relationship that's gone bad. You see, God uh, created us to have a relationship with Him. But man chose to go his own way. Man sought to pursue his own desires, his own wants in the garden. And we all do that. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each going our own way. And we've turned from God. And in doing so, we've lost that fellowship, that relationship that we can have with God. And the Scriptures is one beautiful story of how God redeems that relationship and reconciles us back to Himself. But where are we to turn when our earthly relationships or even our relationship with God goes awry? You see, our bookstores and our conference schedules are filled with how to fix our relationships. We can go find books and and speakers who will speak on how to have a lasting marriage, how to have successful parenting relationships, how to have deep friendships, how to have long tenures in the workplace. And we seek advisors and counselors and authors to find wisdom as to how relationships are to be formed, how they're to be maintained, and how they are to be found to be successful. But here's the thing. If you think you're going to find your answer in a book or at a conference, you're only getting part of the story. You see, this morning I'm going to speak on something that I don't think we really think about all that often. And I want you to really focus in hard as to what I'm saying because this message is going to be very different than many of the messages that I preach because this message per se isn't going to have a lot of application to it, right? It's not going to say, okay, go do these three things and and God will be happy with you. Or if you go and and live out these activities, then then your relationship will be better. This is more about you and, and evaluating where you're at in your relationships as you look into the mirror and instead of seeing yourself and the other side of the reflection, we are going to see God in the mirror. And we're going to ask ourselves this morning, am I relating to others as God himself relates? It's going to sound weird with himself. How does God's relationship with himself help us to understand how we are to relate to one another? What we should expect from others in relationship with us? This morning, we're going to look deeply into the person of God although otherwise understood as the Trinity, and how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit interact with one another and what they can teach us. And this morning I want to look at six observations, just thoughts that I have uh, about what I see in Scripture and how I see how they uh, must be brought in line with the relationships that, or I'm sorry, that our lives must be brought into relationship with these observations that we learn from Scripture. But let me read the passage that's before us as a a springboard to where we're going to go, and then we ask God's blessing on our time. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we find ourselves on the sixth day of creation, and God has created already light, and He's created land, and He's separated the land and the water, and He's created vegetables and plants, and and of course He's created uh, animals, and on the sixth day, uh, He is going to create something 
that is going to revolutionize and change the creation very different than what was created the first five days. Here's what God says. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we need wisdom. We need guidance. We need modeling of what real and true relationships are. And Lord, while we could look to the examples of those uh, around us, We are reminded today that you are the greatest example of what godly and pure relationships are all about. The characteristics, the attributes. And Lord, I'm so thankful that we can see your example of how you live as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How you interact amongst the Godhead. And Lord, while that may be difficult for our minds to fathom, we thank you for the scriptures that reveal these truths to us. And so, Lord, stretch our minds this morning that we may see you for who you are, that we may maybe readjust our understanding of who you are in Trinity, so that we may see how we ought to respond to our spouses, our children, our parents, our co-workers, our neighbors, our schoolmates our friends, mere acquaintances. Teach us what it means, Lord, to live lives of relationship to your name, for your name and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I want to look at at who God is and then apply the truth of who God is and how he interacts with himself to our very lives. But before we can go to the outline and and draw observations this morning, I want to back up and and remind us, do some, if you will, Theology 101, and remind us that as Christians, we understand God through what Scripture tells us. And Scripture tells us much about who God is. Write this passage down, Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4, Moses tells the Israelites, Hear, O Israel, the Lord... Our God, the Lord, is one. Now let's stop there. Unlike many other religions and faith beliefs, we as Christians do not believe in a multiplicity of gods. We believe in one God, Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We believe in the God that is professed through the Old Testament and the God that is not only professed but reinforced as the God of the New Testament. We believe in one God, not a a multiplicity of gods who, if you will, are smaller, who oversee certain areas of time and space where maybe a, a particular celestial star like a God of the moon or the God of the sun or the God of a particular planet or a God of, of some sort of uh, phenomenon like rain or, or winter or fall or summer, a God of, of, of a part of a human activity, a God of we don't believe just in a, the God of love or the God of, uh, of sex or the God of, of work. We believe in one God who oversees and, and has created things, both seen and unseen, all things he's created, and he supremely rules and reigns over that creation. And that one God, the Scripture says, is the God who begins 
as the self-existent eternal one when time began. What that means is, is God didn't have a beginning when the shot clock, if you will, started. But that God has been and always was and always will be God. Before you and I were created, before this world was created, there was God. That's a mouthful that Moses articulates in the first verse of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. We could spend years, decades, uh, just drawing out the truths from that one passage of Scripture. In the beginning, God. One God who reigns supreme. Yet the Scriptures tell us that while we worship and live in the presence of this one supreme God, that the God whom we serve is very different than the God of Islam and the God of Judaism. This one God is a God who exists in three persons. We believe in a God, one God, who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, there's no verse in the Bible, first of all, that speaks to this issue explicitly. That is, the Bible never says, and I am one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nor, in fact, does the word Trinity uh, find itself in Holy Scriptures. This is a cardinal truth that we agree with because the Bible is clear that amidst the one God, God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God. And they are affirmed as God, not only by the prophets and the apostles, but even by God himself. And each of these persons have had an active part in eternity because they are co-equal, co-eternal, and they have been a part of the process of creation, redemption, and the filling of God's people since the beginning of human history. While this trinity is something that almost, or I'm sorry, most all Christians must affirm, it's something that we struggle with. And so as a doctrinal statement, one of the first things that we talk about in our church's doctrinal statement is this issue of God and trinity. Notice what our passage says. It says, there is only one living and true God who is a spiritual and personal, you could change that word, a relational being. He's not some far-off God. He's a personal God. He's a real God who longs relationship with his creation. Notice, he is the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. His plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. He's infinite in holiness, love, and all perfections. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and he's present everywhere. His knowledge is perfect and extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love and reverence and obedience. Now all that we've just said up to that point is given to whom? That one God, but notice, who is the eternal and unchanging triune God who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within this Godhead, we have three who are one, and yet this one God has three distinct personal attributes. And while they're three, and this is hard to understand, their, their diversity is not a division of nature, essence, or being. 
What that means is the Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father is, though they're different. And the Son is just as much God as the Spirit and the Father are. And so, though they are three distinct persons with their own personalities, with their own roles and, and uh, um, personal areas of engagement, if you will, within human history, they are all God, co-eternal, co-existent, one. One God, yet three. Now, I know, again, that can be difficult for us to, to flesh out and work through. But I want you to see this morning that as we look at God and we look at the community of the Trinity, we will see how God Himself lives in relationship with Himself. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if we can model how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live together as one, if we are to really want to see true relationships in our lives, then we would model ourselves behind that relationship. You see, many of us will go and say, I want a stronger marriage, and so we'll go find the couple that's been married for 75 years, and we'll say, what kept you together? Well, they may give you some great wisdom, but they are not perfect as God is in relationship. We may want to find out how to better parent our kids and find someone who, who has these wonderful kids that they've raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And they may have great wisdom, but no one is perfect in their love and care for their children like God the Father is. And so we need to look to the Trinity and ask the question this morning, what can we learn from the Trinity that might help us in every earthly relationship that we have? You see, healthy relationships can only be found when we model ourselves after a relationship that is utterly perfect. And only the Trinity can say that. So we have to look at the example of the Trinity and apply it to the relationships that we have this morning. And so I want to do that by looking at six. Six, yes, six things. We'll have you out by the picnic. Six things that I observe by looking at the Holy Trinity and how it applies to our lives. So, looking at God... And looking that we are created in the image of God, these six truths are imperative for us to have healthy relationships. Number one, observation number one, the human design, the human design is one of immense, immense complexity. If you've been married to a woman, men, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? They're complex creatures. Well, here's the thing. So are you. And we are coming to realize more and more how absolutely complex we are as human beings. That there's a lot going on in who we are. There's the depth of who we are is something that is quite amazing. Now why is it that we are such complex creatures? Why aren't we like animals? I look at the dog I've got, little Wrigley. And Wrigley has two emotions, happy and sad, right? And Wrigley, there's not much complexity to him. If he comes to me, there's three things he wants. Either to play, to poop, or to eat. Right? That's it. But human beings, we are far more complex than that. What causes that? Well, number one, when we look to God, we see that God is a complex creature, right? And what I mean by, by that is God in his eternalness has a depth to him that is so utterly amazing. And when this God who is multifaceted and this God who is personal and relational, this God who is, who is so amazing, created men and women, he created us in his image. 
And because of that, just as he is complex, so are we. So notice in verse 26 and 27, he creates us, male and female, in his image and likeness. Image and likeness were thought to be different things, but, but they mean the same. This passage shows us, first of all, by being created in the image of God, you and I are unique and carry a special dignity that no other creature in all of creation has. God has made us different. He's made us different than the angels. He's made us different than plant and animal life. He has made us to be multifaceted individuals. And because of that, relationships are very, very difficult. The reason why you struggle in your marriage, the reason why you struggle with your children, the reason why you struggle in the workplace and in the neighborhood and in the school is because you are working with complex creatures. It isn't vanilla. It isn't all the same. Right when you think you've figured out people, God introduces you to someone who's absolutely positively crazy, right? Who's different than anything you've ever come into contact with. I'm amazed at the complexity that I see in my three boys. Both coming from the same gene pool, they are completely different. Complex creatures that deal with things in a myriad of ways. Why is this? What causes this complexity? First of all, complexity comes because like God, we have emotion. Write that somewhere. We have emotion. And emotion shows us that there's much to us. And think of all the different emotions that we can have. We can be happy, we can be sad, we can be filled with joy, we can be scared, we can be anxious, we can be confident. All of these different emotions that we can have. We can have emotions of jealousy or the emotions of compassion. All of these different emotions that, that are a part of the human existence and it allows us to look at life on a myriad of levels. And so when we deal with someone, we first of all have to ask the question, where are they emotionally? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they angry? Are they content? And like God, we carry emotion. And this emotion can be something of beauty. It can be something like a kaleidoscope filled with all manner of colors, something that we stand back in awe of. But usually we don't. The second thing that makes us very different and very complex is we have the ability to have an intellect. We're thinkers. And as thinkers, we have the ability to discern what we are going to reveal about ourselves to other people. You see, God is an intellectual being. And God makes decisions on what I'm going to share with people and what God says I'm going to keep to myself. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, this is what Moses says about God. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do the words of this law. So God says, listen, as an intellectual being, I've made a decision. I'm going to reveal myself to you certain things. You're going to know certain things about me, but there are some things I'm going to keep to myself. And so when God creates man in his own image as intellectual creatures, he gives man and woman the ability to do the same thing. First Corinthians, write this passage down. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 11 for who knows the, a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in them? You see, 
Relationships are hard because God has created us, unlike any creature in all of creation, the ability to say, I'm going to reveal myself to you or I'm not going to. You see, God created in the garden for relationships to be so pure that we could walk around, I don't mean this to be funny, we could walk around naked and have all of who we are revealed towards one another, right? But the problem was, sin entered the world, and what happens the moment sin enters the world? Man and woman begin to cover themselves to hide themselves from one another. And relationships have been broken since that point. We are missing the mark with regards to relationships because instead of being transparent about who we are, we keep all the secret things unto ourselves. Does that make sense? And so we're covering ourselves. And here's the sad thing. Many of you are in a relationship with people who aren't being them real self. They're being a totally different person. Some of us right now, because maybe we're afraid of rejection, maybe we're self-conscious of who we are, maybe we don't think all that highly of ourselves, instead of showing who we really are, we show something that we really aren't. And when we do that, we're not in relationship with one another. If I'm not real with my wife, then my wife is not having a relationship with me. She's having a relationship altogether with someone she doesn't know. She thinks she does, but she doesn't. And so the Bible makes it clear that we are to uh, be people who are willing to uh, reveal ourselves to one another. That we are to reveal ourselves. And again, the Bible makes it clear in different relationships at that level of revelation is revealed to to certain people. Here's the thing. God has sought fit to reveal himself in different ways with different people, right? God has revealed the totality of who he is to the other members of the Trinity. God has revealed himself uh, to the prophets and the apostles in ways that he hasn't revealed himself to us. Just as we, as husbands, reveal uh, much about ourselves to our wives and our wives to their husbands and parents to kids, but we don't, and and again, I don't mean this to be funny, we don't reveal all of who we are at the next party that we're going to, right? I don't say, you know what, hey, my name is Tim Bidall, and I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about me as much as my wife knows about me. You ready? No, we don't do that. There's there's a decorum to that, that there's certain relationships that, that have certain revelation. Here's the thing, God has revealed himself to his children in ways that the unbeliever has no knowledge of God. And so God says, listen, your job in relationships is to reveal yourself. To not cover yourself up, but to reveal yourself as the complex creature that you are. You're complex. You're crazy. I I don't know if your pastor needs to tell you that, but you're crazy. And God's made you crazy. He's made you unique and you're different than anybody else. And we'll deal with that in a moment. But God has made us to be complex creatures because we've been made in his image and likeness. But notice, this complexity is something that should be gloried in. This complexity should be something that's praiseworthy. But we push it away. Observation number two. We are created. We were and are created for community. We're created for a community. Notice in the phrase, and this is very important, 
When we look at first, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, notice the phrase, Then God said, let, help me out there, us. When I say let, and Tim said let us, am I using proper English? No, I should say let me, right? If I'm speaking of myself, I should say, let me. Here's one of the pictures. This is one of the first pictures of God in Trinity. God uses the plural to speak amongst himself. God, one God, says, let us, plural, make man in our, another plural word, image. And so we see within the Godhead there's a community. That God is not a, a singular being without other persons a part of his God, Godhead uh, nature, but that he is one but three. And in creation, the Trinity, the triune God, the three persons of the Trinity, were creating together. And what God does is he creates community. And I want you to notice this for a moment. Did God create one star in the heavens? No, he created a myriad of stars, a community of stars. When God created this earth, did he create one plant? No, he created a myriad of plants, a community of plants. When God created animals, did he create one animal or a community of animals? We see that over and over again. And then in Genesis chapter 2, God creates man. And he creates man, and he's created all this great stuff, a community of things, because it's all being created and modeled after the community that's taking place of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God creates man. And man is given some tasks. Man is given the task to take dominion over the garden and to take dominion over the plant and animal life. And he's even given the charge to name the animals in chapter 2 of Genesis. And then as man is doing that, God sees something in Adam that he says is not good. Notice in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. He says the following, Then the Lord said... It is not good that man should be, help me out, alone. This is the first time, remember, God has said every time he's created something, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Then he sees man, and he sees a man alone, and he says, that's not good. We need to address that. This isn't what we experience, God is saying, in, in Trinity. This isn't what man is seeing in the animal life, because as Adam is naming all the animals, he's seeing them male and female, male and female, male and female. And he's saying, wait a minute, where's my counterpart? Where's my community? You see, up to this point, man is alone in creation. The angels have, themse have themselves community. God has community. Plant and animal life has community. But man does not. Man does not have someone to live life together with, to have shared and common experiences. Now remember, man has animals, he can interact with them, yes. Man has God, he can interact with God. But he has no one like himself, the complex creature that he is, that he can share life together with. And so what does God do? God creates woman. And he creates woman for companionship, camaraderie. He creates woman for community, for intimacy, for love, and, and living shared experiences together. And then he gives man and woman the charge to say, listen, it's not just good enough for you and man and woman to be alone, 
But he gives the command, the first command is build more community, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And so he says, I want you to have more community because it's not good enough for you just to be together, the two of you just newlyweds loving on one another. But I want a whole community of human beings who are not living in isolation from one another, but who are sharing life together. We are created for community. But here's the thing. Many of us would choose isolation over community. We do so in our marriages. We choose isolation over our families all the time. We choose isolation instead of new friendships and new relationships. We would rather come in and be anonymous in the church than build community with people. And so we choose isolation over and over again. Listen, uh, the advent of the television allows us to live shared experiences with the world without ever having to have personal contact with them. Do you know that? You can watch what's going on in the world and never have to speak to another human being. You can just watch. And this has crept into the church. Even though the Bible speaks about us being in community and telling us not to forsake the assembling together, we have found ourselves not living in community with one another. We live in isolation. Let me tell you why I think isolation is bad. Do you think it's any surprise that when the devil tempted the first couple, he didn't do it with them together, he did it while they were separated? You ever thought about that? Can, can I just share something with you? I always sin more when I'm by myself than when I'm with a brother or sister in Christ. Because the devil loves isolation. He thrives on isolation. God created us for community. And the devil wants to separate us and get us by ourselves because when he gets by ourselves, we, he knows we'll fall to his lies. Had there been someone next to Eve that would have said, Hey, Eve... That's a lie. It's bogus. Don't believe that. Why is living in community important? Because living in community will always, listen to me, and you can fight this all you want, living in community is always better than living life by yourself. Let me explain why. Whenever anything good happens in your life and you're by yourself, what is one of the first things that you do? You pick up the phone or you go find someone to tell them what took place, right? We don't want to live or share experiences by ourselves. We don't want to do things alone. When you get a bad medical report or a bad issue or a troublesome thing comes, you want someone who is going to jump into that pit with you and say, hey, we'll do this thing together. And God reveals himself in this. You see, when God created the world... We get this idea that God's this bearded guy, you know, kind of looks like uh, the pictures of Zeus and Santa Claus all merged together, okay? And he's sitting on his throne, and he, he's just pointing and, and creating. And he said, let there be light, and there was light. And he was like, there you go. And, and there was land, and he created land. And then there were animals, and there were plants. And he's just kind of creating like this. Get that out of your mind. Because the one God is a triune God. And you want to know what God was doing in creation? The best way I can explain it is the following. Golfers, you, you've been there. Golfers, sometimes we golf by ourselves. Sometimes we gar golf with golfing buddies. And golf, you're on hole 12. It's the par 3. And you set yourself up to golf and, and you're by yourself. And you hit that ball like you've never hit it before, right? 
and it hits the green. And little would you know, it's starting to roll towards the hole. And you can't believe it with your own eyes. You're going to see it. It falls into the cup, a hole in one, right? And you throw up your arms and you're all excited. You're cheering. And then you look around and there's no one there to experience it. Did anybody see it? Can anybody say, wow, can anybody celebrate with me? That's living life in isolation. And I will tell you, it is always better to hit a hole in one with your golf buddies than it is to do it by yourself. Amen? You want someone to experience it with. And I'm here to tell you that creation was the triune God high-fiving one another as they were bringing things into existence. Hey, did you see this? Look at that. Look at what we created. And they're high-fiving each other. This is great. This is awesome. And God has purposed us to live life that way. That's why the Son, when good things are happening, He's going away with the Father. When bad things are happening, He goes to the Father. Because He says, I cannot live outside of community. And here's the amazing thing, He was God. And if God saw fit to live life in community, why do we as mere mortals think we can live without it? Does that make sense? We are created for community. Don't push it away. Number third observation. We have been given great relational capacity. Great, amazing relational capacity. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139 for a moment. Psalm 139. If you've got a pew Bible, you'll find that passage on page 521. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. Write it down if you're just going to read it later. But this is what it says of God. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such wisdom is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now let's stop there. This is David praising the God who knows him intimately. And this isn't true. We don't look and say, wow, sure was nice that God knew David that way. I wish he knew me like that, right? No, we praise God because the same things that David says of God knowing him, I could say, God knows me like that. And God doesn't just know me like that. He knows my wife like that. He knows my children like that. He knows my friends like that. In fact, he knows every human being that he's ever created, the billions of people who have inhabited this world. God has known them. And in God creating us in His own image, He has given us the ability to know in a similar manner. Think for a moment of all the people you know. Do you know how many people you know? Studies tell us that the average individual knows, listen to me, more than 5,000 unique people. I know you don't think that, right? I don't know that many people. Sure you do. You don't even know that you know them, right? That's what happens when you're in the grocery store and you're like, yeah, I I know you. Just help me out with how I know you because I know you. And there's so much RAM stored up back there. I'm having to, you know, work this through. 
thousands upon thousands of people you know. And you know them in all, all areas of life, in all areas of activity. And so God says, you are created in my image. I'm going to let you know lots of people. And I want you to know lots of people. Listen, God didn't give you a capacity not to use it, right? So he wants you to know lots of people. And the reason why he wants you to know lots of people is because when we know lots of people, there's great joy that can come with knowing people, right? Knowing who they are and understanding what they're all about in that. But notice, it's not just the breadth of knowledge of people, but there's a depth to it. Here's an amazing thought. I've been married to the same woman for 19 years, and listen, I am just scratching the surface on knowing who Amanda Bedall is. And there's a great joy in sitting and talking with her and learning more about her. Never, listen, never do I say, Amanda, I think I, think I know all, all I need to know about you. I've completed my knowledge of who you are. No, right when I think that, and I've thought that, and husbands, we think that, and wives, you think that of your husbands. Right when I think that that's the case, they do something that I'm amazed with, okay? Women who were on the ladies' retreat, I learned my wife is the limbo champion of the universe, okay? I've not seen that. I did not know that. And I'm learning that Amanda's quite a bit different than when she's by me. Okay, We learn new things about our, 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 our closest friends and loved ones. Let me tell you, I'm on a journey with my sons and I'm learning so much about them. And I'm only scratching the surface and right when I think we're getting together, the teenage years come and then they go silent. They don't say a thing to you. Then it's the guessing game. Who are these people and what's going on in their lives? The depth of relationships that we can have. But here's the thing. The devil doesn't want us to have depth of relationship. The devil doesn't want us to live out our unique image bearing of the God who created us. So the devil, listen, wants us to live at superficial levels all the time. So the devil's thankful when the husband and wife know nothing about one another. When the family is in all other rooms, never doing shared experiences together, never having depth of relationships with one another. The devil loves it when we pull into our garages and put the garage door down and then live in our islands of isolation, never having engagement with the world around us. God has created us for community with real relational capacity. And I hear this more than I ever wish I would. I have heard it from so many people here. I don't like that the church is getting bigger, and here's why. I have all the friends I need. Really? Let me tell you something. You need more friends. I don't know of anybody who said, I just have too many friends. It's a burden. It's just so terrible to be well-liked and enjoy life together. I don't know what I'm going to do with all these people. It doesn't happen. We don't do that. We don't say that because it's not true. God has given us a capacity. Now, you may say, Tim, hey, hey, you're like super extrovert, right? Of course you would say that. But I want you to know this doesn't come from being extroverted or introverted. This comes from being made in the image and likeness of God. God has created you. And here's the thing, introverts, you teach us really what many times deep relationships are all about. And how far we can plunge the depths of knowing people. 
And God has given us that capacity so that we will do it. Listen, God wants this church to be filled with deep relationships. Deep relationships, profound relationships. He doesn't want us talking just simply about superficial things, but to get to know the heartbeat of one another. Next observation I want to make. We must delight, not disparage our diversity. We're in relationship with people. In every relationship we have, the person we're relating to is different than we are. And in the Trinity, we see three persons who are one, but they're three persons. And let me explain what I mean by that. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father, right? They're different persons. They have different roles. The Father wasn't the one who went to the cross. The, the Son isn't the one who indwells every believer. The Spirit isn't the one who providentially rules and reigns over its universe. They have different roles. And listen, nowhere in all of Scripture, in all of history, have you ever heard in the Trinity the Son say, Why do I have to be the one who gets crucified? Why? Why am I the one who has to put on flesh and feel pain and sorrow and sadness and, and, and pain and suffering? Why do I got to be? Sure is nice to be the Father in heaven, never have to leave heaven, be worshipped and adored forever, and I got to be the one that goes to Golgotha and pays the penalty for sin and death. You never hear that. You never hear the Spirit say, but all the holidays are for the Son. We celebrate his birth. We celebrate his resurrection. And the Spirit doesn't say, what about me? How many times do the Village Bible Church celebrate Pentecost? That's my holiday. Nobody's buying gifts for that. We don't get cards for Pentecost Sunday. What about me, right? I did something different. The Trinity teaches us that there is great good in being different. But here's what sin does. You're black, I'm white. I look at you with disdain. You're educated, I'm not. You have more money than I do. You live in a nicer house than I do. You, you have a different personality. You have different gifts. And what do we begin to do? We begin to segment ourselves. And we say, well, no, diversity's bad. We, we have to look at people who are different than us with distrust and, and, and uh, with contempt. And think of the evils that we've done on diversity's sake. And instead of celebrating diversity, we turn it away as it's some unnecessary evil. It's not evil. God shows us the wonder and the beauty of being different by being one God in three distinct and different people, persons. And so we need to celebrate diversity. Listen, we all want to be what everybody else wants. Women's libs say that women need to be like men. Racism says that, that whites and blacks can't get together. And instead of disparaging these things, we need to delight in them. But let me assure you of something. Sociologists say if someone looks or speaks differently than you, there are greater chances that you will hesitate in your engagement with them. Do you know that? And the reason why is because you look at someone different as now being an obstacle to a real relationship, let me tell you something. There is not a single person on this earth that's like you. We're all different. 
I married, you know this, I married a very, very different person than myself. In some ways, we talk in the phrase, opposites attract, right? The differences are good. I have three boys, and they're incredibly different from one another. And that's good. And the joy that comes from us loving on one another and the diversity of one another. And here's what's great about diversity. Diversity allows us to be revealed more about God than it would be if we just knew ourselves. I love when we do theology here at Village Bible Church. And in my theology class, we don't say, okay, we're only looking for white middle-aged males to be a part of the theology class. We say we want everybody. Why? Because women teach us something about God that males we don't know. I want young people in the class. Why? Because young people reveal something about God that maybe I don't understand as a growing curmudgeon. I want to hear from people that are from Africa and Asia and how they understand God and how they experience God because they're going to teach us something about their traditions and something about how God has uniquely uh, created in them a way to worship them than just how we do it here in America. Diversity teaches us about God. But within diversity, even within the Trinity, the fifth observation comes. No matter who we are, we must pursue humility. I'm finishing up here, so stick with me. While the Godhead is equal, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are completely equal, there's a hierarchy that that takes place within the Trinity. The Bible makes it clear the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son. Okay? Okay? So in, in John six thirty eight, Jesus says this, being God, think of the, think of in some ways from a human standpoint, the absurdity of God saying this, okay? For I, God, have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me, Okay? That's the son saying, hey, I came down to earth as, God, as the God-man, and I'm not doing my own will, per se, but I'm submitting myself to the will of God the Father. And so I'm submitting myself to it. Of the Spirit, the Spirit, we are told, says he does not speak on his own behalf, but he speaks the words that are given him. So God the Spirit does not speak as he could because he's God the Spirit, but he speaks only that which is told him by the Son and the Father. And so what that tells us is, if we are going to live in diversity, then humility must be our calling card. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Son of God saw the importance of humility. And he laid himself low. Why? By laying himself low, relationship could be restored. Do you understand that? If Jesus doesn't put on flesh and make his dwelling among us and live a perfect life and and, and go to the cross and fulfill the will of the Father, you and I would not be saved. And so humility enables relationships to be restored. Listen to me, husbands, and listen to me, wives. One of you has to humble yourself or that relationship is never going to get better. 
Parents, children, if we don't start humbling ourselves, then that relationship is never going to be restored. Humility is the vehicle to restored relationships. And if you're unwilling to humble yourself, as God the Son did, then relationships will never be restored. It will be my way, it will be her way, it will be parents' way and the kids' way, and never shall the twain meet. Humility says, I'm going to make myself low so that this relationship can be restored, so there can be redemption, so there can be reconciliation. And if God in his trinity can do that, then why would we think in our sin we can't or we won't? We must, no matter who we are, pursue humility, not think higher of ourselves than we ought. If Jesus could lower himself and make himself nothing by putting on human flesh, then why can't we put a towel and take a basin and wash one another's feet? Humility. Finally, we must strive for relational unity. What does this all bring about? When we look at these things and the complexity of of who we are and how God's called us into community and he's given us this capacity to to care and to uh, know one another and he's done so uh, to keep things really fun. He's created us to be diverse and different. And then he has said to be able to do it, you've got to be humble. What does that lead to? It leads to relational unity. And I want to just close with with a passage of scripture. John chapter uh, 17, John 17, verse 20. Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer right before he's about to be arrested. And he prays this. And notice he's prayed for himself. He's prayed for uh, the glory of the Father to be made manifest. He's prayed for his disciples, the 11 that are still with him. And then in verse 20, he turns from the apostles to those who will accept the apostles' message. If you don't know who that is, it's us. So this is Jesus praying for us. And in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, the 11 only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That you and I, he says, he's praying for us, that they may all be one. What does that look like? Notice what he says. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they may also be in us and that the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes on later in the text and he says that just as I am in you and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. God desires, listen, and this is important, we'll close with this. God, Jesus, is praying that you and I will experience relationships that have the same unity as the Father and Son do. Now you say, wait a minute, that can't happen. Sin entered the world and Jesus must be mistaken because, because of sin we can't experience that. Well, here's the problem. When Jesus prays, the sin has already entered the world, right? And it's not some kind of superficial oneness because he says, he could have said that they would be one and period. Leave it at that. But he doesn't. He says that they may be one just as you and I are one. So it tells us that this relational unity that we can have is a relational unity that can happen through the Spirit of God, through the bond of peace. And so you and I, the goal of relationships is unity. 
And not just a superficial word-only unity. Well, here's my wife. Old ball and chain. I got stuck with her. You know, divorce is a bad thing, so I'm with her. No, God wants husbands and wives to be one. And isn't it amazing that he says they become one flesh? And this picture is the picture of relational unity between Christ and the church. So God wants relationships. He's built us for relationships. And he's given us the ability to have a, uh, just a wonderful unity. And so what's keeping us from this unity? What's keeping us this unity in our marriages? What's, what's keeping from this unity happening in our families? What's keeping this unity away from happening between brothers and sisters in Christ? The answer is sin. The answer is pride. The answer is selfishness. And God in His grace has given us the greatest picture, the greatest model of what relational unity looks like, and it is in His perfect trinity. And how they interact with one another. And now God says, go and live in relationship just like we do. Don't live for self. Don't be selfish. Don't, don't, don't pursue your own gain, your own desires, your own glory. But look to others as being more important than you. Be like Jesus, who said, not my will, God, but your will be done. And when we live out these observations, when we recognize these observations, then our whole understanding of, of what it means to live in a relationship will be dramatically changed. A different kind of message, yes, but one I pray that will have lasting implications in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, schools, neighborhoods, with people we first come in contact with, that we might see them as God sees them people who need to be related to in deep and profound ways. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you for the patience of your people and their diligence to listen to what you've laid on my heart. Lord, these are, these are things that we don't think about very often. But thank you for the modeling that you do for relationships. Thank you for how you have shown us what it means to live, though diverse, in community with one another. Lord, I pray as a church that these relationships would be seen, that the marriages of this church would be seen uh, to be pictures of what the Godhead looks like, that our family relationships would be that of unity and not disorder and conflict, that the way we interact with one another would be that of depth and love and care and concern and compassion, not rivalry and selfish ambition and conceit. Lord, to do so, we have to be willing to reveal the real us. And so, Lord, I pray for the atmosphere and, uh, of this church, that it would be a place where people can be real and people can be honest and people can be transparent, where they will not be judged or, or made fun of or, or called uh, um, crazy or foolish. So that, Lord, the depth of the relationships that you've purposed for us would become a reality. So, Lord, let us evaluate our own lives this morning and seek to understand who we are and how you've created us so that we may live in relational community with those you've put in contact with us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for, again, the model that you've given us. Now let us live it out.
even now as we greet one another as we depart this place. Thank you again, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.